Welcome to the Boiled Out Coffee Club Podcast, the meeting after the meeting where we talk about our experience living sober. We don't speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, this is only our experience. We have no monopoly on sobriety. If you don't like our approach, that's okay. There's lots of ways to live and lots of ways to live sober. This works for us. I'm Don. You sure are. Oh, wait. Who are you? Hi, Don. I'm Sam. Oh, Sam. I knew I recognized you. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while. (laughs) Uh, I've been... um, I think you were wearing that shirt the last time I saw you. I probably was. I hope you washed it. (laughs) I probably didn't. Ooh. (laughs) Since we're recording back to back, (laughs) it's only been a few minutes. I don't, it you seems know, like ages. We should do a wardrobe change. <laughs> <laughs> then the live audience would yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah, right? they would appreciate that. <laughs> you told me a story about that. That there was a period in your past where you were listening to a lot of country western music. Well, you know, this was back when I was a teenager, and I uh, I was not allowed to drink with. The rednecks, and I can call them rednecks because you know you ain't got scratch too deep on my neck to find the red. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I grew up in the country, and I was hanging out with with the rednecks. I was in my teens; they were in their twenties, and they would all sit around and get drunk and high, but they wouldn't let me drink. So all I got to do was get high, and we would sing country music. All right, sing along. <laughs> it's very much was a sing along. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was karaoke before karaoke. Was you, karaoke. Were you singing to the radio, or y'all were just um, CDs? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, uh, and it was all uh, almost all old country music and and some some gospel too. And, you know, we were doing Merle Haggard and, and uh, Merle. Hank Williams Jr. And uh, uh, we did the gospel was uh, Reverend F. C. Barnes and Sister Janice Brown. They were amazing. Look them up. But yeah, yeah, we we. We would sing. So what was one of the drinking songs? One of the drinking songs. Well, you know, Hank Williams Jr. Uh, was was talking about this this perfect country and western song. Hank Williams Jr. has got some drinking songs. He does got some drinking songs. Well, this particular drinking song uh, was uh, You Never Call Me By My Name. Because it's like, you never call me by my That's name. That's it. That's it. But there's a there's a verse to it. That was added that makes it the perfect country and western song. Yeah. And the last verse goes like this here. Well, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. And I went to pick her up in the rain. But before I could get to the station in my pickup truck, she got run over by a damned old train. And then it goes into the chorus. That's sad. It's fantastic when you're drunk and high. Yeah, really. <laughs> you got some of this in your history, I bet. Oh, oh, Lord have mercy. I love drinking songs. Merle Haggard is the Tonight the bottle left me down And let your memory come around the one true friend that thought I'd found. Tonight, the bottle led me down. I'm, I'm kind of fearful that you might have had a bit of a relapse right now. <laughs> uh, 
And well, I think if I were, I would find it doesn't work. <laughs> like, it still doesn't work. Still doesn't work. Like he's complaining about. I mean, that's the point you get when you reach bottom, right? It's true. And you can hit, hit those low notes. Well, <laughs> I'm letting it down. Well, and you know, smoking really helps you hit those low notes, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was in a, um, a band for years and years, and I, I wrote many a drinking song. Which I would sing and pretend like I was an alcoholic, you know. Just, <laughs> that way, <laughs> Pre- I, pretend I'm that going way I no avoid right being an alcoholic. Like, I'm only <laughs> pretending to be an alcoholic. But <laughs> we had uh, we had one song that was like it was a it was a Christmas song. All I really need. It was a list. Of, it was really I thought it was about consumerism. Well, it was. It was about consumerism. It was like all I need. For Christmas, all I really need underneath the Christmas tree is all I really need is cigarettes. All I really need is a pack of florets. All I really need is a chimpanzee underneath the Christmas tree. And uh, but the, the, I've heard that song. Yeah, in the center of it, it goes. All I really need is a, a Guinness beer and a Miller and a Schlitz and a Bud and a Light and a draft and another draft. Pour me another draft, another draft, another draft, another draft, another draft, another draft, another draft. That's all I really need. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Listen for the whole song after the podcast. It's pretty much the truth. Yeah. <laughs> I sure am glad you sobered up. Yeah. I think a lot of people are. <laughs> There's a lot of people who don't know you who are glad you sobered up. That's probably the case. <laughs> well, we have a guest here. We do have a guest. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Tom. Tom. Hey, Tom. Glad you joined us. Yeah. Nice to be here. Tom, when did you get sober? I got sober in 2014, August 30th. What in the world happened to you that brought you to AA? Oh, uh, well, uh, a, lot, a lot of misery and pain, I guess, is what convinced me to, that it solves the problem. But uh, I don't know. It's a good question. What brought me here? What happened? Yeah, what was the misery and pain? Uh, well, I mean, because who wants to quit drinking? And who the hell wants to go to AA to do it? That's true. I mean, I I still was, I was unconvinced I was an alcoholic, but uh, I think I'm jumping ahead. Really, I, I was drinking every day for a while. Before then, you know, I, I, I wasn't drinking every day when I was like 16, but maybe when I was 17. Mm-hmm. That's when I started drinking every day. I was definitely getting high and or doing something every day. Since I was 15, but you know, about how old were you when you got sober? I was 24, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I remember turning 21, I think, maybe 20. Uh, that's when I really started to drink every day. I was getting half gallons of Gold Crown, drinking that, and then I realized like that's a bit much, and somehow I, I rung it into uh, like two tall boys, maybe three tall boys a night. And, you know, I, I just, I really got sick of doing that. And, um, you know, I wanted to save some change because I was not working. I was just living in my parents' house, trying to hide from my parents inside their house. It was really hard to <laughs> <do>. <laughs> it was really I love that. Hide inside the house. Trying to hide from my parents inside their house. Yeah. And it's like, hopefully they'll come in my room. <laughs> and when they did, you were hanging the ceiling or something like that, <laughs> a la Spider-Man. I'm not I here. Had a, I had a lampshade over my head. <laughs> that part of scenery. I thought that was just part of being the life of the party. 
So, yeah, I don't know, there was, there was times where I was like, all right, I'm kind of out of change. I'm sick of stealing change from my brother and my mother and stuff. So I, I'd actively, I, I would honestly be like, okay, today I'm going to save some money so I can get drunk tomorrow. And it just wouldn't happen. You know, I'd run to the gas station, get more beer and drink it. And just wondering what the hell happened, you know. Were you living at home when you got sober? Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I just recently moved out. Uh-huh. About a year and a half ago, uh-huh. uh, I'm living with my boyfriend now. I met him around. He's mm-hmm. nice. He's a nice guy. Yeah. So I was living. I was still living at my parents' house. I have no idea why they ever kicked me out, but that that was nice of them. You know. Yeah. Um, what a shock. <laughs> and uh, parents will put up with almost anything. I mean, it's incredible how much they'll put up with because they love us. You know, my parents love me. Yeah, my my parents did love me a lot. They still do. I'm not saying like they don't anymore. They still love me. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when I got sober, they uh, you know, they they told me a few times. So like, yeah, we had like two conversations of what to do with you, and we just did not know. So they were super happy I got sober. I'm gonna back up a little bit. Yeah. What was what I want to know is what was going on inside of you, in your mind that made you decide that. I've had it with this. Okay. I began to become, I became afraid of drinking like I was. Um, and I remember my dad yelled at me once to go to a meeting. And I showed up at a meeting. I don't know, they were nice. They were open. They told me to keep coming back. But, you know, I still didn't want to quit drinking. You, wait a minute. Your dad told you to go to a meeting? Yeah. Did he know about AA? Uh, mildly. Uh-huh. Um, he, I think he had some some family that went in there before. I know I have a in-law that's got like 20, 30 years sober. Um, other than that, he's not an alcoholic. No real immediate family is that has been in AA. I, I, he's a smart guy. I don't know how he knows about it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I eventually went there, so I saw people who, I saw like a possibility that I could get sober if I wanted to, maybe. And, uh, you know, I left. I kept drinking for a while. Eventually, you know, when I was still, I was afraid to continue to do what I was doing, though I was still doing it. And then I was also afraid to stop doing what I was doing. So that's kind of why I kept doing it. And I'm not sure how or when I, I became more afraid to continue to, to live like I was living. Because that's, that's kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. I, I reached like a peak fear moment of, well, I mean, this is horrible and ter- like terrifying. To, I didn't want to die, man. I was 20-something, I was 24, you know? Were you worried you were going to die? Yeah, kind of. I knew if I kept doing what I was doing, I, I probably would have, just because, you know, I, I remember... Just drugs and alcohol? Yeah, there's drugs and alcohol. I was mixing powerful sedatives and, you yep. know... I had some friends. That's that a were, good way to die. Accidentally. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I, I had some friends that would score some, like, off-the-wall stuff. That, like, I, the first time I tried meth, I remember being at the lake, and, you know, I, I didn't like it too much, to be honest, which was surprising. But I, I, I remember waking up three feet away from the lake, face down, covered with ticks. That sounds like a great time. Yeah. 
Woo! Good time drinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's just no line to myself anymore. It's like what I'm doing to myself is dangerous and it needs to stop. I'm afraid to stop, but I'm afraid to continue. And then I was like, I really should stop. And I, I did everything I had in the house, all the drugs, all the liquor, all the booze, everything I had in the house. I, I drank it all and I wasn't quite where I wanted to be. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I wanted to be a little bit more fucked up than I was, and I wasn't fucked up enough. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, man, I, I got to do something. And I've been calling this one dude. I met me, and I called him up, and I was like, I think I'm ready to stop drinking. And he was like, okay. And he was like, what, do you, what happens when you don't drink? And I was like, I, I shake, and I sweat, and I just kind of stare at the ceiling. <laughs> so he was like, go to the hospital. And I went to the hospital. I dried out there for three days. That was that was a wow. Yeah, that was That's weird. A big step. <laughs> Go yeah. to the hospital. I remember telling my parents, I was like, "Hey, can you guys take me to the hospital? I want to quit drinking." That's what I told them, and they're like, "Uh, uh, uh okay." Wow, <laughs> That's wow. great. Yeah. You know, I've heard what you were saying earlier about you wanted to keep drinking, but you didn't want to keep drinking. It's like. I've heard it put like uh, the one thing that's holding me together, I have to give up. And it's like, how am I going to do that? The alcohol was the one thing that was holding me together. And now I'm going to give it up. Yeah. That doesn't make it, that's the problem. It, you know, it's like, uh, how's this going to work? I could not see how it was possible to live without alcohol. I can relate. Yeah. yeah, I had no idea. I, I for a while didn't think it was possible for someone, for me, just for me to do it for some reason, because it was all not all I ever known. I've been getting high and or drunk since I was eleven, so it was kind of all I knew. So to to stop doing something like that was terrifying. I don't know, man. It was weird. It was weird. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're in the hospital. Yeah. Three days. Yeah, I was there for three days. Um, what happened when you got out of there? I went to a treatment facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a two week stay, and I felt safe in there. And I was I was amazed at the at what I was doing. I was like, wow, I haven't had a drink in a while. I was it was mind blowing, and like you know, pigment came back in my face and I was feeling great. And they were telling me to go to a meeting, get a sponsor, work the steps. I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it was no, a, but no. But no. No. So I don't need that. I can figure it out myself. It's cool. So, like, uh, I got... Did like, you have more drinking to do? Uh, maybe. I suppose. It's a... I don't know how to look at it besides... Did you drink again? I did. I yeah. did. Well, okay. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> you had yes. more drinking to do. I had some drinking to do. I mean, because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like uh, I didn't quit until I failed at proving to myself that one drink is not going to work. It's just not going to work. I cannot control it. Yeah, I you know I I, I feel like that was I can relate a lot. You know, I remember going thirty days drinking again because the obsession just hit me. I did nothing but think about drinking, so I eventually drank. And I was doing nothing with the sponsor, and I was trying to work steps by myself, so 
you know, I remember two weeks later, I was out for like two, well, I was never out. I was drinking, but I kept going to meetings. Mm -hmm. And there was a, yeah, it was a weird two-week period of just constantly picking up white chips. Because they kept telling me to come back, and I, I love that, man. I was, I haven't been welcomed back in a place like that. Wow. It's like, this is cool. You know, you know, I, I, I decided that I don't know what I'm doing, that somebody else does, I should probably listen. And uh, I also stopped fighting myself, because I was still fighting myself with notions that, well, maybe I'm just Irish, maybe I'm just young, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. I stopped doing that. You know, I conceded to myself, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. There's no doubt about it. That's the place. Because you got to get through all those excuses, and the only way to get through those excuses is by failing at con yeah. at controlling my drinking. That was my experience too. I mean, I I had that what I thought was my last drink after a suicide attempt, and then forty some days later, I drank again, and that was the last time I drank. And I remember in looking at it, it's like I really can't successfully do this. I can't. I can't control it. Mm -hmm. And that was when I finally conceded to myself that I cannot. I mean, it was somewhat mostly uphill since then, though, which is cool. It's uphill? Oh, uh, yeah. Like uphill? Like good? Good. Okay. <laughs> Things are trending upward. Oh, okay. I like, okay. Kind of like a bar turd or something. So, what did you do coming into AA? Um... No, let me ask you, let me get more specific. Okay. What was something that was seemed that AA was asking you to do at the very beginning that mm -hmm. seemed crazy, oh. but turned out it has worked? Um, the steps. The steps. <laughs> Let's just cut it The whole I just thing. I love how dry that answer is. <laughs> the the <steps>. whole thing. <laughs> Mostly, uh, I was a uh, the steps number two, number three, a little bit of number number eight to nine. Okay, so you could be powerless <laughs> over alcohol. Yeah, I knew I was I was completely fucked. It's it's the best way I've I heard it. Um, because at the time, you know, I was still mush brained, and it made sense to me that like I could not. I was fucked. It's a very simple. Yeah. Um, well, well, what was the problem with step two? Uh, I knew they were trying to trick me and make me believe in a God that I had no idea of or didn't want. And that's what I thought about it at the time. I Tricking you. Yeah. I was, I, I was paranoid. I was very paranoid of people in AA. You know, they were so nice and I wanted to trust them. I just had a lot of problems with, with the idea of the power grade in myself because for a time, I was running off a philosophy that I was in charge of my own destiny, that I was responsible for the outcomes in my life. And, you know, AA is kind of like, no, that's not really going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, and, you know. But it was, it was such a relief when my sponsor sat me down and recognized that I had all these issues with that step and was just like, you know, do you believe what I'm doing is working for me? And I was like, yeah, clearly, I want that. He's like, okay, let's let's move on. And you know, as I moved through the steps, I developed some kind of relationship with the power greater than myself. I'm not sure what it is, but I rely on whatever it is. 
um, some days. I remember there was a period. It's not necessary to define it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it says God as we understood him uh, or understand him, but so many of the, the stories that I hear people sharing nowadays is I don't need to understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I found that out as I went. It was, it was, it was relieving. It was nice. Was there um, was there any um, throwing of, of books across rooms or anything? Yeah, you heard me tell some stories. <laughs> yeah, I remember my first sponsor. Uh, he he would uh, send me home with the book and he'd say, "Yeah, why don't you try reading uh, to we agnostic to the agnostic? I'm sorry, to the agnostic." And yeah, I read maybe a page before I was thrown it across the room in my room. I was mad at it. I was mad at my situation. Yeah. I was mad at what it was telling me. <laughs> I thought it was trying to trick me. Uh, it was it bad. I went to my current sponsor's house. We'd sit down together and read the book in his house. And that was helpful because I, I couldn't throw the book in his house. I felt like that would be rude. That would be rude. Yeah. So I had to sit there and keep reading. It was nice. <laughs> but there, I would should think that there's also something that reading it with the sponsor as opposed to on your own. Yeah, it provides some uh, conversation, some context, some some background information, right. etc. One of the things he did was, you know, he would stop me because I think he knew I wanted to throw it across. <laughs> so he would explain to me how to what it was actually saying rather than me trying to convince myself that it's trying to trick me right you know i could the whole book didn't make sense to me when i read it by myself it was only reading it with someone else and in big book studies that i learned what it was really getting at right i mean i had a problem with the archaic language i was like well that, and that's a thing too particularly today i mean we have to remember that we're we're Reading a book that was written in the 1930s, you need someone who's been through it to help you get through it. Yeah. it, it you really do. Even yeah. if you're brilliant. I was raging at the language that I, I felt like was disrespecting women. Oh, and, yeah. Right. And it was like, this is like, this is terrible. This needs to be rewritten. And I was raging about it at a, at a meeting. And Claudia who had seven years sobriety at the time, and I had like three weeks. And I was complaining about the non-inclusive language. And she said, Don, I was able to get sober reading this book. So you can let that go. You don't have to fight that fight. Mm -hmm. And that was the best advice, because I was going, well, yeah, I, yeah okay. <laughs> Instead of looking at what's wrong with it, let's let's look at what's right. I was able to get sober with it, so you know. Yeah, I found it to be very helpful. I even today still um, there's a very simple outline for living and stuff in it After, because there are parts of it that are wordy, but there's parts of it that are just kind of instructions. That's so, nice. so how did you yeah. get to the place where you? It wasn't trying to trick you. Um. What do you mean there's trying to trick you? That's a good question. It's hard to describe. Um, I thought just really AA as a whole was just a cult. I, uh, I I went to Catholic school as a child for a while. And I learned, I learned like, you know, 
school stuff, but they also tried to push Catholicism on me, and I was like, no, not that. And uh, I think that put a bad taste in my mouth for any kind of God-related. Mm-hmm. So, and also, I don't know, I, it, it influenced, like, AA's occult to me somehow. Just the way, somehow, the, the book really talks about how you're uh, kind of, in the beginning, it describes powerlessness and, and you know, that, and how it's, you know, you're completely fucked for a while. And then all of a sudden, it talks about, like, there's a solution, and then you throw the word God at you. May you find him now, 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 now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I didn't like that in the beginning. Yeah. Don didn't like yeah, that I either. didn't like that either. I didn't like it either. I don't know too many people. There are people who, Carol, who's a friend of mine, says that she had no problem with God. Well, she also stole your beer. When t- she did. But when she came in, she had no problem with God at all. She believed in God. So she was praying and telling God exactly what to do and who to fix and what and how to arrange ah, the world. Yeah. That's she was coming at it from a different and had to let go in a different place than I did. Yeah, my thing with it was I I did not go to uh, uh, religious school or anything like that. I was in churches as a child and went to Sunday school and all that stuff. But I had an aversion to religion when I came into these rooms. I, I just, it was not for me. It's still not for me. But when I came into these rooms, what I thought I was hearing, what I thought I was being exposed to was sneaky religion. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's kind of That's what. the trick. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I could relate. So my sponsor told me, I don't care whether you believe it or not, just do the prayer. And he asked me, like, he asked me what your sponsor did. Do you believe I believe? And I had to say yes to that. I absolutely believed he believed. And he said, well, use my idea of a higher power and just use that and go with it. Let's quit worrying about that and move on. And what works so well is that you had the choice to do that or not. Mm -hmm. You were not. I've never been told in AA. What I have to believe. No, not yeah. what I have to believe. That's and true. that's what I heard in religion. Right. The difference is I'm being asked to do the prayer. It's not, I, he didn't care what I prayed to. And in fact, I've or often if you said, even meant it. I, if I meant it, and I prayed to the nothing. Right. That's the way I thought of it was the nothing. But something happened. And then AA was confident, and my sponsor was confident that if I did it, something would happen. And then I let that thing that happened became my higher power. Yeah, pretty much. I remember, you know, I sat down with him, and we just kind of, he pushed me along, you know. He didn't really, like what you guys are saying, he never forced me to believe in anything. He, he just asked me some questions, and he was like, all right, let's, let's continue. He, he kind of just kept nudging me along. And, you know, I wrote an inventory and told him everything about it. And I was okay with, like, step five. Like, I, I was okay with sharing with people. That didn't scare me. What scared me was making amends to people. Um, I, I agree. I had been in therapy before, so step five made lots of sense to me. Oh, yeah. 
Well, and I think I've heard is, you know, we're alcoholics. We are self-centered in the extreme. Yeah, you're talking you about know, yourself, Step right? five is all about me. <laughs> Let me tell yeah. you about it. Although it wasn't as comfortable, like, in therapy, they don't say things like, so you're a thief. <laughs> like, well, <laughs> Don, that's only been said to you. Yeah, that damn was said to me because I was didn't want because to say you it. were a thief, and I was like, and I said, well, I was describing my behavior, uh, stealing stuff, and, and and the justification and rationalization. And the justification. For it because, you know, I'm, I'm an artist. I deserve this cadmium red. That's right. And he said, well, if you take things that don't belong to you, that belong to other people. That makes you a thief. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I'm a thief. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, so, so he pushed you along. Pushed you along. You. Oh, yeah, he, he pushed me along. Uh, and I mean, that's kind of what solved the whole, really just my problem with God was just continuing to work all the steps and continuing to work all the steps even after I got done the first time with them mm -hmm. um, so yeah. you've done you, you you repeat the steps yeah sweet I uh, I mean I don't work them with him I try to institute them in my life as I continue to live and I check in with my sponsor about how I'm doing with that and I, I mm -hmm. continue to take inventories at night and I continue to try to meditate and pray you know I for a while there I didn't look at it as I was praying to something I was just talking or whatever it was out there yeah. Just help me through the day if you can. Help me be useful at the end of the day. But thanks, dude. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. That's that's maintenance. That's maintenance of a spiritual program. Yeah. And that's and that's praying in your own way, not how someone tells you to do it. Yeah. It was you know one of the one of the things that I hope I never forget is um, someone told me to keep it simple. And that has been paramount to my recovery, just trying to simplify this as, as I can. Keep it as simple as I can. And that has been um, very helpful. Because that's, that's sort of how I started with the higher power. I commenced at a very simple level. I just, it, I, I kind of think of it as like an antenna trying to talk to aliens, like that weird guy in his basement, not sure what's out there, but sending waves, seeing what's happening. That's kind of how it started. You know, it morphed into something like, I don't know if I, I never got any pings back from the moon, but uh, there's a moon. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Maybe. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you ever have uh, something happen where you would now explain it as your higher power doing something? Um, so a spiritual experience. Spiritual experience. Or just really kick-ass coincidences. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if this qualifies. My ego doesn't want me to share this, so I'm going to. Um, I don't know. I was in a, I was involved in a car accident. Um, I, I was driving down Lake Street going 40, 30, probably 40 or something. I hit this car head on. Bam. Uh, you know, everyone survived. Me, uh, poor kid I hit. And I was given to Ed. I don't know if you guys know Ed. He was in the car with me. He's fine. Good. Uh, all of us were okay. Um, and I remember it wasn't really not surviving the accident. It's what the spiritual experience was. It was the next day I knew that I'd be okay if I continued to do everything I needed to do. 
that that's that was the spiritual experience it was that feeling of comfort that i know i will be okay it might get uncomfortable but i know i'll be okay if i continue to do things i need to do to stay sober oh yeah yeah that was pretty cool well a lot of times with me it's looking back is where i see it yeah and the uh confidence of the program working comes from the experience of going through difficult situations and looking back and saying, Oh, I was doing like when my brother died, I, it was, it, in the midst of it, I was a wreck. I was, it was awful. And I felt like I had no spiritual connection, uh, in the, right in the middle of it. It was really hard. I was having to go to the hospital all the time, having to be there with him. And uh, we had a schedule of caring for him and everything. And But looking back on it, six months later, it's like, oh, wow. I was able to be there for him and care for him during this difficult time. When I was drinking, I wasn't there for anybody. I couldn't do it. Yeah, I would have to go to the bar and drink instead. Yeah. And looking back on it, I can see how I was carried through that situation. And I was surrounded by AA and the people in AA, people in my home group, and all were, were there with me, caring for me. And I look back on it and go, okay, I'm going to allow that that's God. Wow. That's my higher power. Because before I came to AA, I did not have that. I didn't have that response. That's my higher power at work. Okay. Yeah, I'm still learning, you know. I, uh, I've been sober for three years, but, like, I'm, you know, I'm still learning. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm try, I try. Sometimes my ego gets the better of me. And, you know, like my head goes way up my ass, and I think I know what I need to know. It's fine, but like, yeah, I, I appreciate that, what you were saying, Don, about, you know, allowing that to be God, because a lot of times I just, I get, I still get stubborn, and I still get defiant towards the higher power idea, you know, and it's all ego-based, because like, I don't want people, I gotta be this cool punk rock atheist guy, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know. It's ego. It is yeah. ego. It's the opposite. Higher power is the opposite of ego. Right. So what, for me, I was like really concerned with being cool. And I talked to my sponsor about the problem with God. God, I'm going to be completely honest with you. What's the problem with God's problem? Not cool. Yeah. It is not cool. God's kind of lame. And yeah. why is that? What is cool? Cool is self-reliance. Yeah. That's what cool is. I am self-reliant. I got one eyebrow. I got one hand in my pocket and the other smoking a cigarette. Yeah. You know, it's and like... Everybody wants to be me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and relying on a higher power that's invisible is not cool. Yeah. It was really hard to give it up. And the kicker is... I have met some of the coolest people in these rooms. Absolutely. Over these years. Uh, people that 
have I have so much admiration of. And you know what's really funny? Those moments when I find out they admire me too. You know, if 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 we're in the middle of this, if we're doing if if we're living this life in, in AA and just being active, helping people, showing up, being available, all these things that we've learned in these rooms, then you're a rock star. Every, you have admirers. My sponsor calls me a rock star. Don't let it go to your head. <laughs> <laughs> Buttering you up. <laughs> you gotta watch out for those sponsors, man. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, it, it is. It. I always wanted to be the cool kid, and I never was a cool kid. I was a nerd from the word go, and then I was a gay nerd. And I was doing all this in small town Southern America. Mm-hmm. That no, I was not popular. I was not cool or anything. And then I found alcohol and drugs, and I still wasn't popular, and I still wasn't cool. I just didn't care. They made me not care. Well, so what do you get out of being cool? You know, and I look at my life now, and I have a way to live in the world that is productive, and I'm trying to help other people, and I find that what's really rewarding in life is not the stuff that's cool, it's where I get a sense of satisfaction from discovering that I was able to be helpful to someone else. And that's what's cool. And that's It's a whole reframing, a whole new understanding of what cool is. That's what happened for me. Mm-hmm. Because cool for me is I get to be a part of all this. I have friends all around me. I have tons of friends I haven't met yet. And I get to be a part of this. I get to help people. I get to be helped. I get to participate in some really cool shit. Yeah. That's cool. Walk walk into a meeting in any city and sut and within you know, by the end of the hour I've realized I've got friends there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. <laughs> it's that's very cool. cool. And that's not isolated. Uh uh-uh. uh. It's the opposite of being isolated, yeah. which cool makes you isolated. So what what happened as you were working the steps? So you said you were afraid of the one thing you were afraid of was amends. What was that experience like? Yeah, I was afraid to make amends um, because I didn't want to talk to those people. <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's some honesty. Yeah. Keep, I, uh, keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at least he called on those people. It's not like I didn't want to talk to those assholes. Yeah, that, I mean, you didn't go there. Real growth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's Tom's um, falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, I was afraid. I was just afraid to bring up the. I was afraid of what I've done to some people. I was afraid to own up to it, to bring it back up, and you know, I allowed them to tell me if whether or not it could be righted or wrong, or yeah, righted. Or fixed, really, and um, you know, I that's something I, I did learn through the steps. You know, I I was I, I just I'll, I'll be honest, like I was afraid to make amends to my mother because I, I would I would drink and black out and verbally abuse her um, often and for a while, and 
you know, she would tell me that she pretended to be asleep on a chair when I was, you know, drunk as drunk as fuck. She would just try to hide from me pretty much. Uh, and she's, you know, she, I was afraid to dredge that up, but, you know, one day I did. Uh, I tried to make amends to my mother because I, w- I really wanted to write that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved her. I know she loves me, and I know she knows I love her. So I was like, okay, let's just try to fix this. And I was like, hey, Mom, you know, I phrased it in, in a very practical way, kind of straightforward. And I was like, hey, uh, you know, step nine is trying to make amends to those I've hurt. You, you are, I owe you an amends because I, I, I hurt you in the past. I didn't want to be specific about what I did, but she knows. So I was like, you know, if there's anything I can do to try to write, not being the best son I was, getting drunk like I was, if there's a way for me to write that, just let me know. Or, or just, you know, I asked, I don't know how I phrase it exactly, but I was like. That's pretty much out of the book. Yeah. And she told me, she was like, yeah, you can get a job and get the fuck out. Oh. <laughs> now, were those her words or your? Those are exact words. Oh. You can get a job and get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> but she said it with love, right? Uh, yes, love, mild, mild anger. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I mean, we, we kind of have a relationship like that where we, it was unfiltered language between the two of us. But, uh, you know, I was expecting her to be like, oh, it's okay, it's fine. But, you know, as, as I look back, like, I don't know if she was ready for that to be righted or if she even knew how that could be righted. So she was doing the best she could. And I was just doing my part. What do you have with her today? Oh, uh, we love each other. And, you know, she, I, I moved out. And I had to drink a little bit. She wanted she wanted you to take responsibility for yourself. Yeah, that's what she wanted. Yeah. And I did that. Now she misses me. And now I need to try to be a son and visit her. So that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm not great at it. And I fall short. And I told her uh, I told her that we'd go get lunch and we never got lunch because I'm selfish at times. But you know, she was up. We were up all together this weekend at my grandma's, so that was that was fun. Went up to Philly to see the family, so I spent time with her up there. But yeah, I, I would like to make more of an effort to see her more often. My amends to my mother was that's what the amends ended. I thought the amends was about money, and I think I've shared this before. But uh, she said. This is what I want. I don't want your money because we had sat down and had a two-hour conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I determined from then that I was going to contact her once a week, which I did okay. till the end of her life. And it was, and uh, well, actually took care of her a lot more than that towards but the end of her life. she wanted her son. Yeah. But that's what she wanted. She wanted to have some relationship with me. Yeah. And... And that was my experience with, with my grandmother in particular. Uh, my mother lives a few hours away, so I'm not as frequently in contact with her. And she and I have never been in contact frequently anyway. But I was able to show up particularly for my grandmother on this regular basis in a way that I never did when I was a drunk. 
and that was the immense. There were other parts to it as well. But like it'd be nice if there would be some material amends and then I don't have to do anything. But what what real recovery is about is about relationships and repairing relationships. Yes, and one of, and so this is a this is a thing that happened with me with amends too, uh, a misunderstanding that, and thankfully I got cleared up on this early on, that making amends with someone does is not me telling them, hey, I want to be buddies with you. Because there are some people in this world that I needed to make amends to that I also didn't need to be in relation with. Right. And so I'm cleaning things up because it's the right thing to do. But this doesn't mean that we're, and I didn't say it to them this, this way, mm -hmm. but, but it doesn't mean that we're going to be buddies now. Um, it just means that we're cleaned up and we're okay. And it's also up to the other person. There was there was one person I made amends to that I did a great deal of harm to. And we're friendly, but I destroyed that friendship. And it's very generous of him to even be friendly with me. So, you know, I would like to repair that relationship and, and have an ongoing relationship, but that's no longer available. That's on me. It's what I did. And it's it's up to him what he wants to do. I mean, he yeah. he has his feelings as well. Yeah, the amends aren't really about me. It's about the other person trying to fix what it did to them. Thing, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's about it. both of us. But the, yeah. but the, but the thing is that I can't go into it selfishly that it's only for me. Yeah. I can't harm someone else to yeah. make me feel better. I, That's not going to work. I'm I'm curious about uh, after step nine. Yeah. 10, 11, and 12, mm -hmm. the, the so-called maintenance steps. Yes. And, and so, you know, and you mentioned that you, you're still, you're, you're still, because uh, a lot of people, a lot of us don't, not, I don't necessarily do this, you do that nightly inventory. Right. Um, you're doing that nightly inventory. You, you, I assume you're checking yourself, your shelf, you're checking yourself during the day as I you do. go. I pause, um, I pause often. When I pause, I, well, it depends on why I'm pausing. I'm pausing because I'm pissed off at traffic, sort of, you know, trying not to get angry. But, uh, but like, if I'm, if I pause because I know I'm afraid, sometimes I know I'm afraid of something. I then waiting and people were getting nutty, and I, I just paused. I was like, you know, I'm going to be useful. And I tried to direct my thought into being useful. And there wasn't much to do around, so the most useful I could be was just to dance and have fun with everyone else. Um, I love that. Yeah. To be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. When I retire at night, and you know, I do review my day mostly. I wish I could say every single day I review my day, but I, I, it's not an everyday thing. It's more like every other day. Um, sometimes I'll do it in the morning, but mostly I, I try to do it at night. But while I was doing it on my ride home, I'd, I'd ask myself. You know, just that paragraph in the big book, where was I resentful, dishonest, self-seeking, or afraid? Did I hurt anybody? Do I know apology? Do I need to talk to somebody about something right now? That one right there was a big one for a while. Because mm -hmm. it was a very easy way to just be like, no, no, I'm good. I don't need to talk to anybody. I answer all the questions. Don't need to talk to no one. And it was easy to answer no to that question. And, uh, you know, finally I started being like, well, let's see what happens when I do. And, you know, I'd call some people. And I remember I was calling people, and they were like, why, why are you talking to me about this? This is not, 
it, it was like something that really didn't need to be discussed just because it was like mundane stuff. Because I, I, you know, I wasn't used to answering that question, honestly. So I was kind of calling people for no reason for a little bit. But I learned. So I wanted to say like I was calling people for no reason because I did learn how to answer that and how to gauge what I do need to talk to other people. Gotcha. About. Yeah. But like for a while there, it was, it was fun. People were getting random phone calls. <laughs> right, which used to be drunk dialing, but now <laughs> call and making amends. I mean, it's probably a little bit check in dialing, but more <laughs> productive. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us. Don't go anywhere. We have a question yeah. for the old timer. What? What? Watch out, duck! <laughs> Grab it! Grab that thing! It's time for our old timer's question. Who you calling an old timer? You. That's what happens if you don't drink and yell, die, you old fart. I mean, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> it's still one day at the time, Sonny. You should take your teeth out when you say that. <laughs> well, stay sober. Don't die. <laughs> if you want to ask a question, go to boiledowlaa.org. We have a question for our old timer. Cindy from Wilmington asks... Can I do 12-step work as a newcomer? Can I do 12-step work as a newcomer? Absolutely. Thank you, old-timer. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate on that? I remember a, a guy asked me to sponsor him at a beginner's meeting. Oh, I think I told him, no, I can't do it. I've, I've only got three months. And I talked to my sponsor, and he said, you know how to stay sober one day at a time, don't you? That's what he needs. And he challenged me, if it happens again, to say yes and be available. Also, it would be a challenge to me to stay ahead of him. <laughs> it, it, it works. And so you can do 12-step work at any time. Yeah, I wouldn't go on a 12-step call by myself now. As an old timer, you know, even many years, I'm not going to go do 12-step work by myself. I'll go with somebody else. That's always a good idea. But there's lots of ways to do 12-step work. And another way to, to do service work is to share in meetings. If I've got experience, strength, and hope, as we say, well, I need to share that in the meeting. And when I'm talking in a meeting and sharing my experience in recovery, then it's then that's out there for someone else to take if they're, if they're ready to hear it. You never know when you're going to say something that's I, I can't tell you how many times I've said something in a meeting and somebody will, might will come up and say, that's incredible. And I've said that to somebody. I've gone up and said, that was a great what you shared. It was just what I needed to hear. And they're going, what was it? What did I share? Yeah, totally. I don't know what I shared. <laughs> and what's happening there, that's higher power. And connections are being made. And it's out of my control. And the easiest service work to do, particularly at the very beginning, is to help clean up after the meeting. Because that gives me an opportunity to be around people in recovery and working together. I'll be, I, I'm learning a lot. And there's a, there's a guy, Thomas, who always says, God, he says that the old timers where he got sober would go, God is in the bottom of the coffee pot. <laughs> <laughs> clean the coffee pot. And... And it's true. 
It's kind of like Prince Albert in a can. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> what you Have you got God in the bottom of the coffee pot? <laughs> well, let him out. <laughs> You're going to make me sound like poor Shaq any minute now. <laughs> Tom, what do you think about this? Can uh, can newcomers do 12-step sure. work? I, yes. Um, you know, one of the things I did was just asking for help, you know. They told me that me asking other people for help and allowing other people to help me was very useful to those people helping me. You know, providing a meeting with a topic is very helpful to that meeting. They're not sitting there in silence anymore and they got something to help or they got something to talk about. Can someone help? Yeah, so, you know, that's one thing I did in early, early recovery was you know, just asking for help. Letting other people help me. And that was, in a way, sort of like a roundabout 12-step work, but also just like what was said, picking up chairs and stuff, finding guy at the bottom of that coffee pot. Let him out. Yeah. Let him out. <laughs> right now he's got Prince Albert. God <laughs> can't get out of the bottom of that coffee pot by himself. <laughs> he needs us to help him. It's true. Uh, you know, for me, the... the 12-step work is is so broadly definable that anything that I am doing that helps another person with mm -hmm. finding recovery or serenity or whatever that they're looking for in that moment, anything that helps the meeting happen, anything that helps service committees at districts and intergroups and such like that happen, you know, I was just uh, to a couple weekends ago. I went to um, the uh, one of the treatment facilities here with two member, two other members of my home group. Uh, one of them has five years, I think. Uh, I was in there with six, and we had a guy with six months of sobriety, and that was the three of us. And one of the really cool things about going to treatment centers is is taking someone who is early in sobriety because. They are the most relatable of the people that come to the visit. Yeah. I mean, someone with years of sobriety, someone who's in a treatment center is so unlikely to believe that or be able to relate to it. Yeah, relate. But someone who's managed to stay sober for 30 days or six months. That's you know, real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so showing up, yeah. showing up is the service that in particular newcomers can do. Showing up, showing up when asked, volunteering for those those uh, those committee positions and and, uh, and such. You do not have to have, you know, lots of sobriety to serve on a committee. You might have to, there might be a sobriety requirement to be a committee chair, but to actually be on the committee, no, we need you. Come be a part of this and help people. And I guarantee you, you will find that as soon as you come be a part of service, you find yourself a part of the fellowship in a deeper way than you ever thought you'd get. Tom, thanks for doing the service work of showing up at the Boiled Owl. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This has been, been fun. Thanks, Tom. Really glad you came. Thanks for being here and dodging friend and foul. Hoo 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 hoo
Thanks for joining us. The Boiled Owl Podcast is posted on the 1st and 15th of every month. Visit our website at boiledowlaa.org or email us at giveahoot at boiledowlaa.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous in your city or visit aa.org. Please note, Boiled Owl is produced by members of AA and only expresses our experience and opinions. It is not endorsed by AA World Services. All I really need is a pack of florets. All I really need is a suit of tweed underneath the Christmas tree. I am a man of simple needs. I don't need much to satisfy me. I could live so easily with a few essential items underneath the Christmas tree. I am a man of simple needs. I don't need much to satisfy me. I could live so easily with a few essential items underneath the Christmas tree. All I really need is a shiny new car, red that with a sturdy roll bar. All I really need is a chimpanzee underneath the Christmas tree. All I really need is three CDs. All I really need is Sarah Lee. All I really need is a friend like these. So loan me a couple of bucks.